All right. Welcome back, everybody, to The Social Brain. Uh, this is, it's been a, a little bit since our last episode, so we apologize for the delay, but we have been hardworking on this one. Uh, it's going to be a really fun one. We're, we're talking about consciousness. This is really a culmination of everything we've talked about this year. I think we've done more than 20 episodes this year about all of these different aspects of how the brain functions, the different aspects of, of all of these mechanisms in the brain. Uh, but all of it happens in a space. Uh, and that space is consciousness, this really mysterious thing that we'll, we'll kind of dig into and talk about. So uh, please don't forget to kind of subscribe to our channels, Cellular Republic and Sense of Mind, uh, and check out our Patreon account if you want to kind of help us out and keep us going. So I'll kick it over to Andrew. Yeah, and uh, just also throughout this episode, don't hesitate to put some questions or comments in the chat. This will be a really, I think, fun episode because um, for me, this... Uh, consciousness this problem this idea it never really hit home for me like it, it, why it was so interesting until i was i think i was a sophomore in college and i was driving home uh from like thanksgiving break or something no i was driving back to college after thanksgiving break <laughs> and um i was listening i'm like an audiobook fiend so i was listening to uh this book uh, Waking Up by Sam Harris, who's a neuroscientist and sort of a philosopher, podcaster. Um, and he was just, it just hit me at some point that this is such a fascinating thing. You know, consciousness, this word gets thrown around so much that sometimes it kind of seems to lose meaning. But it just hit me that everything I've considered real, everything that is real to me in this moment, my experience, that's consciousness. That's not to say that the universe and physical reality doesn't exist. It, it does. But but at like your experience of it, your life, everything that's ever occurred and happened to you is um, consciousness or it is that's that's what we're going to get into right now. So I just want to kind of frame that that there may be if, if this problem isn't very interesting to you, I hope that this episode can kind of make that shift and uh and help you have that that experience i had while driving yeah and i i mean this kind of hit me in a similar way too because i had i'd been doing my undergrad i've been taking some classes about the brain and i had started working in a rat lab kind of uh researching like memory and all these processes and i was learning so much about these different mechanisms in the brain and like this part of the brain does this and this part of the brain does this but when you really zoom in on kind of the molecular structure of these things, right? You have a neuron here in the back of the brain. You have a neuron way over here in this part of the brain. If you're talking about biological distances, these things are like hundreds of miles apart from one another, right? <laughs> and they're both doing their thing. They're both firing or whatever, but they're so far away from each other. And somehow all of this activity that's happening at the same time all over the place in the brain somehow comes together. It's all, all of these things are glued together into this unified experience that we have, right? We look around the world and we see everything as, as whole. There's solid structures as all of these things. But even when you get down deeper and you look at like quantum mechanics and atoms and everything, we, we know that like most of this stuff is empty space, right? And that our brain is, is taking these waves of light in, these, these wavelengths of pressure in the air, uh, and it's making them into this experience that we have that is is something that allows us to persist, survive, to keep going, right? Uh, but we have to realize that everything we see, the colors that we see, the, the sounds that we make up, those are all processes that are happening inside of our brain. Uh, and 
this is going to be a really interesting episode because, I mean, everybody has an intuition about consciousness, what it is, what's conscious, what's not conscious. Uh, and I think what we really want to do in this episode is is look at where we're at with the science and, and kind of we're not we're not experts in all of these theories. There's so many of them. People have been studying these things for decades, uh, but we for will millennia. Give you for millennia, yeah, right? This has been a philosophical pursuit, right? You go all the way back to to even like Kant, like is the outside world even real? Uh, like is, or is everything perceptual? Um, so we're gonna try to touch on as much of that as we can and really kind of show you where the evidence is at, what we have evidence for, what the researchers think is conscious and is not conscious. Uh, and it's, it's a really kind of philosophical quicksand that you can get into. Uh, but we're going to try to dance that line as best we can. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe let's start with some definitions uh, as we like to do. Um, so consciousness, as I mentioned, is this term that is just thrown around so much that, again, it, it kind of loses meaning or, or it can seem that way. And people use it in very different ways. Um, so I think for our purposes, and Taylor, you can um, modify or correct me. Um, but I, I would say consciousness is subjective experience. That's to say, if there's anything that it's like to be you, that is consciousness, right? Like, um, and that comes from mainly from the philosopher Thomas Nagel and others. That the pretty popular definition, especially in the the neuroscience of consciousness, is that if, if there's any sort of experience happening, that is consciousness um, compared to like, you know, a water bottle. Well, we'll get into this later on, whether you know, inanimate matter may, may, or not, may or may not be conscious. But, uh, but as far as we know, you know, there's something happening inside here, inside my head, but not happening inside this water bottle in terms of experience. And it's, it's kind of a, a tricky question, right? Like, do we have to have a nervous system? Do we have to have a brain for all of these things to be possible? Uh, the, the essay that you're talking about, Thomas Nagel's essay, what is it like to be a bat? Uh, really kind of opened up a lot of this stuff of, you know, there's there's an experience. Uh, there's a this word, it's like one of my favorite words in the world, umwelt, uh, <laughs> what it's like to be something we tend to be very anthropomorphic, right? We have this experience of being human and we try to, to put that experience on other things. But we have to realize that, that being a bat probably feels very different than being a human, right? The way that the senses are, are integrating stuff, the way that it navigates, all of that kind of stuff, uh, the way that it's interpreting bodily signals, uh, we have to realize that there's this experience itself that is the conscious experience. But what I really like to think about in terms of consciousness is that it's like the space that all of that stuff is in, right? Like we have mm. certain sensory stuff that we have, our ears, we're very visual dominant, right? Uh, other animals are very smell dominant, but the, the consciousness is the kind of space that all of that stuff is being fed into. It's uh, I know uh, Sam Harris talks a lot about this is it being kind of like a mirror of of all of those things that are happening to the the organism, all the bodily experiences, all the sensory experiences. But like Andrew said, it's it feels like something like that. That thing has an internal experience that's usually yeah. tied to, to subsistence. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, you mentioned Sam Harris and also him and uh, a neuroscientist, Anil Seth. Uh, they both, I've heard them both say this, that consciousness is the one thing that can't be an illusion. So it's like if, 
even if you're you are a brain in a vat and everything you're experiencing is an illusion in terms of uh, like you're, you're just in this vat, but you know, you think you're watching this YouTube video, but it's really just a, you know, a mad scientist playing with your brain. Um, that experience is consciousness. So that even no matter how deep the illusion is, if there's any sort of perception or, or noticing at all, that is consciousness. So we, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm just saying, and it's the, the, I think the really tricky thing about a lot of this is why does there have to be an internal experience, right? Mm -hmm. We have all of this, this physical stuff that's happening uh, in our brain, in our body, all of this, uh, all of that stuff could be going on in the dark, right? What makes it so that all of that stuff comes together for us to have an actual agentic, agentic uh, subjective experience? Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's what, you know, that kind of brings us to, well, I guess we could maybe we've, we've mentioned some of these other words in here, uh, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so I think there's a lot of words that get confused with consciousness that might, it might help for us to kind of differentiate a little bit. Um, so would you say Taylor, there's a, is there a difference between consciousness and the mind? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, yeah, I don't know. Honestly, these these words are really hard to define because yeah. <laughs> uh, then you get into I, I would say consciousness and the mind are are very intricately, intricately linked to one another uh, the way that I think about them, because it's to have a mind is to have an experience of of making decisions, of being aware of things, of paying attention to things. Um, and that is all happening inside a conscious experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that, too. I think they're pretty much synonyms. Um, and uh, but just a couple just, uh, you know, people talk about is consciousness just wakefulness? Is it just being awake? Well, I would say no, because you can have consciousness experience, conscious experiences while you're asleep, uh, while you're dreaming. Um, so it's it's different from just wakefulness. Um, and then, I you know, this kind of brings us to what is uh, what is called the, the hard problem of consciousness, right? And we've kind of touched on this a little bit, uh, but do you want to talk a little bit about that, Taylor? Yeah, I mean, the this is usually contrasted to the easy problems of consciousness. And the easy problems are actually figuring out how all of these mechanistic things work. This is something we've been talking about on this show for over a year, right? How all of these different processes in the brain all come together, right? How attention works, how memory works. Uh, those are things that we can actually find neural correlates for. So we, we do some kind of experiment. We see this part of the brain lights up when someone's paying attention or when someone's remembering something. Uh, and we can really map out this stuff really well. I mean, you can see these like circuit diagrams of how all these different brains are connected to one another and how this information feeds into this one and into that one. Uh, but none of that explains why any of it's conscious, right? There was this really good story that we heard in some of the material that we were going through when we got ready for this of uh, there's this, this blind researcher, right? It's this kind of anecdote. Uh, and she spends her whole life studying visual processing understanding all of the mechanistic pathways involved from how it goes from the eyes and the retina uh, through the lateral geniculate nucleus and the thalamus out to the visual cortex out here and then how the visual cortex then builds that uh, in tracks for motion and color and all of these things and builds it into a perception that has this like 3D kind of thing that we can move around in our head. 
She understands all of that, how all of these brain regions are connected to one another. And then she has a surgery done and she has her sight restored to her. She's never seen before in her life. And that day that she sees for the first time, she's going to learn something completely new about vision that she had no accounting for in all of the mechanistic stuff that she experienced. What it's actually like to see the color blue, the color red, what it's like to see motion and all of these things. It's an experience that none of this mechanistic stuff actually accounts for. Uh, and that's what really is the hard problem. How do you how do you transfer from all of this stuff that's going on that that really kind of gets into a lot of this deterministic stuff of like you have uh, this this calcium channel and this uh, sodium channel are causing like this action potential that turns into information that moves around. Uh, all of that can be happening in just this physical space. Why does any of that have to be conscious? And what is the kind of special ingredient? That's the hard problem, right? What is the special ingredient that goes from all of this mechanistic stuff to actual subjective experience? Yeah. And that term was uh, coined by the philosopher David Chalmers and mm -hmm. uh, um, just giving credit where credit's due there, yeah, I guess. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> that I think that problem of, okay, you can talk about the brain all you want. You can talk about visual processing, sensory processing in general. You can talk about memory, emotion, all these things. Uh, how they work in the brain. And it seems to just leave this mystery, this hard problem kind of untouched. You're like, well, interesting, very cool that the you know the visual system works that way. But why is red the way it is? Why is green the way it is? Why is it seem a certain way to me? And I think this leads many people to be skeptical of the idea that the brain is causally involved in producing consciousness that or that consciousness is some uh, dependent on the physical brain because they see all this they go okay interesting but there's this component that is me this consciousness that's that still exists beyond um, or seemingly beyond all these mechanistic explanations and so i think that that leads a lot of people to be like well it, is it really are there good reasons to believe the brain produces consciousness and I think there are. I think there are some good reasons. Um, I think the basic, the basic thing to to a sort of set of facts to get your mind around is that lesioning, so damaging or stimulating um, the brain in certain ways or certain areas of the brain, results in specific changes to our conscious experience. So we were just talking about the visual system, right? And there's all these uh, experiments on, on um, well, really observations of, of neurological patients, not experiments, that would be pretty unethical, but where they've had some kind of damage to one or another area of their visual uh, cortices. And it results in specific changes to what they're able to perceive, what their, their conscious experience really is. So there's this phenomenon called blind sight which sounds really, um, uh, you know, like an oxymoron, blind sight. Um, but it happens when there's damage to what's called the, the ventral what stream. So this is a um, part of the brain or a part of the visual system that kind of uh, it, it's, it involves ventral areas of, of the visual cortex. Um, and it is involved in seeing what is out there in the world, the contents of visual space, like this 
bottle or my face or whatever, you know, your computer screen you're looking at, um, those things. And if that's damaged, if that uh, ventral stream is damaged, people report not being able to see, like they say they're blind, right? But if you uh, move something in front of their visual field, in front of their eyes, and you say, which direction did that move in? And they go, I don't know, I can't see, right? I, I'm blind. But because this other separate stream of visual processing is still intact, which is involved in the motion of things and, and where things are in space, if you just say, okay, just guess, just guess which direction that thing was moving, they get it right more often or at a higher rate than chance. So they're they're on average, they're actually able to tell which direction something was moving, even though they subjectively report that they can't see the contents of visual space. This is this is an interesting distinction, right? Uh, because this is really kind of getting into what it's like to be me, right? As, as I start lesioning parts of my brain, you have Phineas Gage is this really kind of famous example in psychology, this guy that had a tamping rod from a railroad track go through his frontal lobe, uh, completely changed who he was, uh, completely changed his personality, all of these kind of things, right? And so we know that like the, the me component, the, the like what it feels like to be a human, to be Taylor, to be Andrew, uh, can be very easily changed by destroying parts of my brain. Uh, the thing that I don't think it accounts for, though, is that I think what that is is really explaining is that the contents of consciousness are being produced by the brain. And what I'm not yet convinced of uh, is whether or not consciousness itself, like the thing that's being populated with stuff, uh, requires a brain. Um, not there yet. I, I, I'm always like on the fence with this kind of stuff. And I know that there's there's a lot of people that come into this kind of stuff that see the hard problem that they're like, you know, science can't answer everything. There's got to be like spiritual explanations for this, panpsychism, whatever. Uh, but I always kind of leaned on the on the the kind of side of saying that, you know, I think that that life itself has an experience of being alive, that even down to the the single cells, uh, you know, bacteria has like a certain internal representation of their environment. They can predict when things are going to be nutrient rich or not. They can move towards things and away from things. Uh, they don't have a nervous system. They don't have a brain. And so is there something else that's being populated that's not being produced by a brain uh, is, is, is interesting. And I'm not I'm not convinced yet. I don't know. Uh, and it's one of these things where when you get into a lot of the neuroscience, uh, you you start leaning so much more and more into like, yeah, it's got to be brain centric. It's got to be the brain. Uh, but it's hard to shake a lot of these intuitions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, see. OK, so I, I hear that and I, I'm actually really sympathetic to that view. Um, and I I agree that the the lesioning experiment or the lesioning observations I just explained don't get at that that space of consciousness that you're talking about. But I guess there's a couple questions that pop up in my mind when yeah. you say a space of consciousness. Could it be that it's not a space per se, it's not a thing, but that perceptions or um, emotions or, or these brain processes themselves are conscious? And the only reason I, I, uh, I start going, or what another one reason I start going down that road is, uh, when we talk about um, you know bacteria or other simpler biological systems being 
in some way conscious or having an experience of some kind, it leads me to go, okay, well, why is it that only certain parts of my body seem to be conscious? Yeah. You know, if they're all this biological system, they're all integrated in a very, uh, you know, complicated way. Why is it that I don't feel the, you know, my toenail uh, or my the bottom <laughs> of my, my the heel, the callus on my, yeah. my heel um, versus I, I feel, you know, my skin, right? But I, I don't feel my skin if you damage my, my spinal cord so that I'm, you know, paralyzed from the neck down. Um, so I, I hear that. And I, I think we will, the more you talk about this kind of thing, the more that you realize there aren't any simple answers really no. to any of this. <laughs> and so I'm not saying Taylor, you're wrong or anything like that, but it just poses that question in my mind. Why is it, you know, it seems to have something really closely to do with the nervous system, but could it be that my toe is conscious, my my heart is conscious, but <laughs> I'm just the brain, so I'm not aware. I like I that it starts yeah, to yeah, yeah. all kind of get a little fuzzy, I guess. No, it does. Uh, so I have a couple things to say about that. Uh, first of all, I think that there's distinctions made in the science between access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness. Uh, so we as humans have this incredible, incredible capacity for access consciousness. We're able to subjectively report what it feels like to be something. And I think that that form of consciousness does require a lot of information processing systems like the brain, frontal cortex, all of these kind of things to be able to to have kind of meta representations of the things that are going on in order to be able to say like, yeah, I am a subjective being. I am a self. I'm exploring this world, whatever. I, I think the thing that that I struggle a lot with is that the more you kind of lean into access consciousness being the only thing that is consciousness, the more you start denying that other living things are conscious, that that dogs are conscious, that, you know, all of these these other like simpler animals. Uh, and to me, they're I, I want to believe it's, it's this dance that I, I'm always on. You know, I have my wife is, is very like uh, is spiritual and on that kind of side. And I'm very scientific. Right. <laughs> uh, and there's this part of me that always wants to, like, believe the mysticism stuff. Uh, I remember Richard Dawkins came and gave a talk at uh, UNLV when I was in undergrad. Uh, and I got up and asked him a question. And he's like this, this huge fan of, of Charles Darwin and all of this kind of stuff. And Charles Darwin had this quote that said, the pursuit of science will turn your heart to stone. And I got up mm -hmm. and I asked Richard Dawkins, I said, you know, how do you kind of, how do you deal with that idea? Because there's so much like vigor in mysticism in like, it gives, gives meaning to you and purpose to, to, to have faith in things. And, to, uh, and when you go the science route, you start to say like, oh, okay, well, there's not all of this purpose and fantastical stuff out there. Uh, and it starts to turn your heart to stone. And I, uh, he had a great answer. He said, you know, I feel the most spiritual when I'm sitting there contemplating how small I am in this vast universe, not contemplating Jesus or God or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, but getting back to, to kind of the point was that like there, I have a lot of these intuitions about there being something special about life. Uh, and even when you hear like Anil Seth, who's a major kind of neuroscientist that studies consciousness, talk about this, uh, he's very skeptical of uh, artificial intelligence having the capacity to achieve consciousness because he believes that consciousness is embodied, that it has something to do with being alive. And so actually creating a conscious machine would require creating a living machine or at least a machine that cares about its own persistence over time. And that's something that, that has always really kind of gotten to me uh, on like, 
I think that, and you're, you're making a lot of leaps when you do these things, but you look at the behavior of a lot of these living things. Uh, and there's this assumption that because they have these behaviors that are approach and avoidance and these, these kind of things that you would expect in a conscious being that that means there's consciousness there. Uh, and there's no evidence for that. That's me kind of having an intuition about it. But it gets to your point, too, in the fact that it implies different levels of consciousness, uh, right? That these individual cells have their own experience of being alive, but that there may be some hierarchical thing happening where the more that it's... I like what you said about it not being a space, right? And I, I kind of regret calling it a space because it implies that it's something physical. Uh, and I've always seen consciousness more as a process right? It's, it's an, it's the, it's where information is coming together to make a decision. It has intention. It has action associated with it. It's us kind of making sense of the world around us so that we can decide whether we want to approach or avoid or do whatever we need to do to survive. So long yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that makes me think of, uh, I do like theories of, of consciousness that kind of take this evolutionary angle and say that if, maybe consciousness um, afforded a benefit to to uh, organisms because it it made like pain, for example, more um, impactful, I guess, <laughs> in some way. Yeah. and and that that maybe that um, allowed those organisms to be more like responsive to their environment in some way. Um, I'm, I don't think I'm really capturing that theory really all that well, but, but no, I, I think, uh, yeah, I take your point that I, I feel like it does seem to have something to do with biological systems specifically. And, um, maybe we should, maybe we should kind of transition into some of the theories that have been proposed for what consciousness, <laughs> how it's produced by the brain. Um, and I guess we should say that, all of these theories that we'll mention do um, take it as a given that the brain is the the, the consciousness producer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, maybe yeah. the first one, um, and I guess uh, to to kind of credit where we're getting a lot of this information about these theories, there was a an, a recent article by uh, Anil Seth and. I can't remember that Bain was the, the other <laughs> last name. I can't remember his first name, but uh, yeah. uh, that was published in Nature, I believe, Nature Neuroscience. And they reviewed the most uh, popular theories of uh, uh, neuroscientific theories of consciousness. So um, the first one we can jump into is called integrated information theory. And um, and yeah, again, actually just one caveat before we get into this. Uh, I'm not an expert in any of these theories. And so um, I apologize if I get anything wrong. I'm trying to like cite the, the experts as closely as I can while keeping this simplified and not getting into like mathematics and all these uh, uh, really complicated <laughs> things that go along with some of these theories. So um, that being said, I guess one way to talk about or to uh, explain integrated information theory is that it's this, it is a mathematical approach to talk about phenomenology, to talk about conscious experience, um, where the, basically there's this, uh, this idea of integrated information where a system has 
causal power upon itself and that that uh, or sorry, cause effect power upon <laughs> itself uh, and that that um, arrangement in that system is consciousness. I'm and whenever I say it, I'm like, am I am I off on that? Like, what's your interpretation of it, Taylor? No, it's a. I mean, it's this idea that our conscious experience requires some integration of information, right? That we our experience is is this kind of unified whole, right? That we have uh, we have our visual experience, our auditory experience, all of these things happening at once that are all kind of coming together. And integration information theory is really looking at what level of integration is required for something to become conscious, right? Uh, what kind of information needs to be connected and put together in certain ways. Uh, and there's there's interesting kind of correlates with some of this stuff, right? Where if you, they can show that different states of consciousness uh, correlate with different levels of, of integration and kind of crosstalk between these different regions in the brain. So you have like low levels of consciousness when we're like sleepy, just waking up, uh, there's activity here and here and here, but it's not kind of coming together. It's not integrated in a way. Uh, and then a fully wakefulness, there's tons of activity that's all kind of crosstalk, that's all kind of coming together and connected. And the idea of it having causal power over itself is this idea that it's it's kind of uh, this gets back to some of the stuff we talked about like cybernetics and things where uh, it's a self-organizing system that the information that's being integrated is allowing that system to then act upon itself to change something right it's putting all of that stuff together in order to kind of correct something that's out in the environment right uh, a lot of this is usually tied to these predictive frameworks, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The brain itself is making predictions about uh, how to survive, right? About what's going on. If I do this, what's going to happen? And then all the sensory information that's coming in is then providing error signals about whether or not we were right. If I move my hand this way to grab the cup, did I actually grab it, right? And if I missed it, how do I need to adjust my predictive model to then correct for that? Uh, and that is this kind of integrated effect causal loop that's happening. Um, and that, but one of the things that, that I think Andrew was kind of hinting at that's tough with some of this stuff is that like, where's the threshold, right? Where, uh, why is it this amount of integrated information is conscious and is less not conscious? Uh, can systems that have a certain level of integrated information, but aren't kind of humans or something like that, like cells that have, that are talking, talking, right? Sending signals back and forth. Uh, is that enough for that group of cells to be conscious, to have causal power on itself? We have all of these different systems in our body that are working together in integrated ways to solve different types of problems, genomic problems, cardiovascular problems, toxicity problems, right? Are those things because they have some type of integrated information conscious as well? Uh, so right. that's kind of how I understand it. I yeah. could be could be off on certain things, but yeah, yeah, no, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And um, I, we could uh, I'll I'll just read this extended quote from uh, Christoph Koch, who's a a famous neuroscientist who has done a lot to advance the theory of uh, integrated information. And uh, this comes from his book, The Feeling of Life Itself, which thought was on that shelf, but it's not. Um, and uh, anyway, so it's, uh, he says, quote, consciousness is a fundamental property of any mechanism that has cause effect power upon itself. Intrinsic causal power is the extent to which the current state of say, and it, 
electronic circuit or neural network causally constrains its past and future states. According to IIT, these causal powers are identical to conscious experience with every aspect of any possible conscious experience mapping one-to-one -one onto aspects of this causal structure. So yeah, if that sheds any more light. And one, <laughs> one interesting thing I think about this theory, like um, is uh, they, they um, talk about how different areas of the brain show higher or, or greater or, or lower degrees of integrated information. And that this correlates with kind of brain regions that we more closely associate with like conscious perceptual experience. So like posterior cortical areas, they, they'll talk a lot about, and this includes like your visual cortex and um, somatosensory cortex to some extent um, and auditory cortex. And they're, they're saying like these regions specifically have actually higher degrees of integrated information. And that explains why, uh, you know, you can damage like the frontal lobe and have seemingly little uh, effect on conscious experience versus when you damage somewhere in the, the posterior regions of cortex, you typically get some effect, uh, some defect in, in conscious experience. And what you're seeing in these posterior regions is a lot of what they call association areas, uh, multimodal areas. So when we're processing sensory information, we have primary sensory regions. So like uh, visual cortex V1 is processing just vision. A1 auditory cortex is processing just sound. Somatosensory cortex is processing just touch information. Uh, but as the activation spreads from those primary regions, uh, it starts to become more elaborated. And then it starts to hit association zones, which are multimodal. So you have these regions of the brain are actually bringing these different senses together and associating them together. Uh, so you have a, a neuron in the visual cortex is going to fire when it sees a line at a particular orientation, whereas a neuron in, a, in an association area is going to fire when it's when there's a line at a certain orientation and a sound that's happening, right? That it's it's now combining these two things and saying these two things, when they're together at the same point in time, have some kind of meaning associated with them. Um, and so you start to see this, like, as you get higher and higher, higher in these kind of integration pathways, the information becomes more meaningful to the kind of survival of the organism. Um, but you'll see, I think, the an important distinction that Andrew was kind of hinting at that we're going to get into with some of these other theories is the difference between what they think is the most important for conscious experience. So some of these theories think that anterior regions, like the frontal lobe, are like the main kind of portion that's responsible for us having a subjective experience. And then some of these other theories like IIT and recurrent processing theory uh, are very kind of posterior centric. They think that a lot of these posterior hot zones are what are required. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess just to like put my cards on the table, I, I <laughs> would think at least from what I've seen from like neurological, uh, like lesion observations that I would like, kind of forced to side with the idea that more posterior regions are more important for conscious experience to some extent, because yeah, people can have really severe damage to their frontal lobes and have still report that they're conscious. But, and I, I don't, I mean, does that mean that they're not, <laughs> that those areas of the brain aren't conscious? I don't know, but, uh, but it doesn't seem like they're yeah. critical at least for like conscious experience itself. 
And to me, I mean, it's what is being fed into the conscious space, right? Uh, and if you're damaging these posterior regions, a lot of that is the direct sensory input to the conscious mm -hmm. experience, right? Uh, whereas a lot of the frontal regions are really the regions that are manipulating that information yeah. for working memory, for decision making, for executive function. Uh, and so that's, I think, the distinction that, that I like. Uh, and so I think that kind of leads into, actually, before we do that, one thing we have to say about IIT is that there was recently just like a letter penned by like a hundred different researchers claiming that IIT was like uh, pseudoscience. Uh, and it created a huge kind of Twitter storm debate about a lot of this stuff. You had really uh, kind of big proponents of IIT getting on and, and really kind of defending the work that they'd done for years uh, that were kind of shocked that these other scientists called their science pseudoscience. Um, but I think a lot of it gets into a lot of these, a lot of what happens in consciousness research where like the theory itself kind of becomes unconstrained where now it kind of gets into the land of panpsychism where you have if integrated information is what causes consciousness then any kind of integrated information in any kind of system is conscious including computers including like non-living systems uh and so where do you yeah. draw the line yeah i remember one of the talks we listened to uh christoph Koch was taught was asked a question about um, if you have like visual cortex in a Petri dish separated from the rest of the brain, but kept alive, um, is that conscious? And his answer was like, yeah, it, it would have some sort of inkling of like visual experience. And so that's kind of like, you can see the, the uh, you know, logical extension of this theory starts to get into some, what seems like weird areas, but, but could very well be the case. Um, I guess I'll just mention too about IIT. I think one reason people like kind of brush it aside is it does seem like it's just saying, okay, well, integrated information is consciousness. And that's just kind of like, to me, <laughs> just saying in, in like a more sophisticated and a more specific and nuanced way, it's basically saying, well, brain activity is consciousness. Yeah. And it's like, okay, Okay, but that doesn't explain the the phenomenological like again why is red the way like the color red seems a certain way to me and not another you know like so I I do see that that like there's still this to me like unsatisfactory nature of uh, of the theory but that's also probably because I don't understand it as <laughs> as well as the experts do. So this other theory that we'll get into is one that I. Uh, I like, I'm putting my bias in there, I guess, but uh, so this one I think has gotten a, a lot of kind of uh, support from scientific studies and from even from kind of anatomy and things like that. Uh, the global workspace theory, this was put forth by Barr in the 1980s. Uh, and it, it kind of followed along with a lot of what was happening in computer science at the time, honestly, uh, looking at some of the information processing architecture and thinking about the brain as an information processor, right? Uh, and that's something that I, I think we talk a lot about on this show is that the brain is is in this, this silent, dark skull. The brain doesn't see anything. It doesn't hear anything or touch anything. All it gets are neural impulses. And it's somehow making sense of the, the, the temporal dynamics of these things and everything uh, to put all that together into a picture, right? Our entire perceptual experience is built off of patterns of firing neurons, right? Which is fascinating in its own right. Uh, but 
kind of what they think is, is happening in terms of how this is related to what happened in computer science, there's something called the, the Blackboard kind of software architecture in computer science. Uh, and it's this, this architecture that has access to lots of different types of processing things that are happening in the computer at the same time, right? So it accounts for the fact that there's parallel processing, which we know happens in the brain because there's all kinds of things that are being processed at the same time that we're not aware of. Uh, but the blackboard is something that all of these systems, these knowledge systems, these computing systems, decision-making systems, they all have access to. They can write to it, they can read to it, and it's a shared space where all of this stuff is kind of projecting to. Um, and that's the idea behind the global workspace theory is that the consciousness itself is kind of this, this blackboard, this, this workspace. And it's whatever is being fed into it. And this is why one of the reasons I like it is because it accounts for some of the access kind of consciousness that we talked about, where you can damage certain parts of the brain and it changes your, your conscious experience. But that's because that information is no longer being fed into the workspace in the same way, right? And so whatever's pertinent at the time, this accounts for different types of subjective experience, right? So if I'm in danger, then the regions that process fear signals and things like that, those are the regions that are populating the workspace, right? Uh, it really accounts for the fact that like, it, it's probably not in one place in the brain, but it's actually this architecture that's connecting these different systems, connecting attention systems and memory systems that they're all sharing. And there's actually this architectural kind of evidence that they think is accounting for this, that there's a certain, there's layers in the cortex that have long range projections. And so they think that this layer of cortex that has these long range projections is actually creating this kind of shared space around all of these different kind of architectures that are there. Yeah, and that seems to it seems to like uh, at least help explain what's called like the binding problem, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that like you know there's all these separate, seemingly separate processes going on in the brain, uh, having to do with you know visual perception and um, auditory perception, but also memory and uh, you know balance, like all these systems mm -hmm. that are uh, seemingly somewhat separate. But in your experience, in your conscious experience, it's all bound together into a unified whole. So, you know, it, it kind of on some level, it seems like it can't be that these systems are separate. So this global neuronal workspace theories, uh, set of theories um, seems to like point at that. OK, well, all of this information processing is sort of coming together in these um, in this this common space in the brain. Um, so yeah. Yeah. And it's, I, I think the, the thing that's, that's interesting about it is that it, it really accounts for the limited capacity ideas, right? That the idea is that this, this global workspace itself, uh, can only hold a certain amount of information. And so there's actually competition to get into the workspace. So there's all this processing that's happening in the brain. It's counting for unconscious processing that we we're not aware of, right? I mean, most neuroscientists researchers think that only 2% of what our brain is doing is actually uh, coming to awareness, that we're actually aware of it, right? And so it's this idea that you have all of these systems in the brain that are processing homeostatic mechanisms, right? And this is something, one of the reasons I really like the theory is because it gets gets tied back to a lot of this embodied idea that uh, we have certain mechanisms that are tracking salt content, certain mechanisms that are tracking hydration and food intake, certain 
systems that are tracking threat, all of these things that are homeostatic mechanisms. Like, what do I need to do to make sure that that system feels like it's operating like it should? And when those things go out of balance, then that becomes a reason for it to compete to come into the workspace, right? And now if it's in the workspace, then it's now part of the discussion of what needs to be handled right now. Um, and that's something that I've always had been really interested in, in, is that we, especially as humans, I mean, this is, applies to other animals as well, but we have hundreds of competing needs at any given moment, right? And what determines what thing we're actually giving our attention to, uh, right? Why is it that this feeling gets to attention when these other feelings that are going on don't? Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, it's tied to kind of the homeostatic stuff, the cybernetics of it. I yeah. Threw that word out, but <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. Like, and because um, you're not always, you're not constantly conscious of like your stomach, of what your stomach feels like um, until something either goes wrong or maybe, I don't know, it feels good or just different than usual. <laughs> and then that becomes this, uh, like it's this competitive advantage for the the representation of like the stomach <laughs> to to get into awareness so yeah that it is interesting it seems to like explain that a little bit um so the next set of uh theories the kind of the final one i think we'll discuss in in a uh, detail like this is the uh what's called like higher order theories and this isn't really as unified like these theories aren't as um unified as the ones we've been talking about before, but uh, it's kind of like the, the basic idea behind this is that um, they said like a, a mental state is conscious if it's the target of a specific kind of meta representational state. So if it's a, if there is a, in the brain, a representation of a representation that is then uh, that's why it's conscious. It's like this sort of feedback loop of looking back on the representations that are in the brain already. So like representing a representation. Um, and I just said representation <laughs> 50 times. So <laughs> uh, the, the, the really interesting thing about this one, I, this was a philosopher that proposed this originally. Uh, and a lot of it ties into the hierarchical nature of information processing in the brain, which is very intuitive. That makes a lot of sense. And I think something kind of hearkening back to what we were saying earlier about like, what is consciousness access versus phenomenal or whatever. I, a lot of these theories are getting at what it feels like to be human. Our conscious experience as being human, like what we have access to, what we can subjectively report, because you have to really think that the consciousness that we're studying, the consciousness that we can study is only what people can report on, right? Because we can't ask a worm if it's conscious. We can ask a human. We can't even ask a monkey if it's conscious, right? Uh, and so when you're thinking about higher order theory, it's what kind of things do we have access to as subjective humans that we can report? And most of that stuff is meta-representational. And this kind of ties into how a lot of these different brain regions work. We had this whole episode on uh, kind of interoception where we looked at the insula. Uh, the insula is this really great example of this where you look at the anterior insula is this map of feeling states in the body of temperature and pressure and all of these different things. And then when you get to the middle of the insula, that whole map is then reinstantiated, but then integrated with other information. 
and then it's reinstantiated again and then integrated with other information uh and to the point where you now have this unified meta representation of like okay have all of the lower order states that are now combined with touch and with location information that are now tied with bodily kind of needs uh and when you look at any of the information processing in the brain, you look at how perceptions are made, right? You have in the visual cortex, you have a map of the visual field where every single neuron is just coding for a specific line and a specific orientation in space. That stuff is then fed to another layer of neurons that then re-represent the map, but that pick out the things that are important. And then that feeds to another layer that looks for motion and looks for color. And then that's fed to another layer. Uh, and so the idea here is that, and this, this theory is very kind of frontal lobe centric uh, because the frontal lobe is believed to kind of have some of the highest order representations of all of this stuff. It's got an account of all of the sensory stuff that's going on. It has an account of what our goals are, what our ambitions are. And it's able to combine all of this stuff into kind of, of a unified whole of experience of I have intention, I have ambition, I have experience, I have feeling. All of that is kind of together, kind of bound up into this moment that we experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think just something to mention at this point is we've been pretty cortex centric in, in what we've been talking about here. We've been really just focusing on the cerebral cortex, this like outer layer of the brain that seems to do most of this higher order processing. And so it, it makes sense to focus on the cortex. And a lot of the, the lesion studies I mentioned uh, are lesions of the cerebral cortex. So, um, you know, it's, it's not like unfounded, but um, like Antonio Damasio, we've, we've mentioned him on this podcast before, but he's a, uh, he's a neuroscientist who has done a lot of, uh, writing about the, the neuroscience of consciousness. And he talks about that, that, um, we need to be a little bit less cortex centric and think about these subcortical regions, like, especially that are involved in, um, sensory, uh, sensory processing, like the thalamus is the thalamus is this region that is sort of the sensory gateway to the cortex um, where it's it's receiving information from all the senses except for smell but it's all all the senses are kind of sending information to various nuclei in the thalamus and he's his idea or one of his ideas is that this is where feelings begin that this would be like the the proto feeling like so if if that's true, then maybe we're we're focusing too much on the cerebral cortex as this like consciousness, um, you know, machine. And maybe there's these subcortical regions that are where it first emerges. But it's no, hard to I, test that. <laughs> but I I really like this kind of train of thought. Mark Solms gets into this too. Uh, he's a, a big kind of uh, contributor with a lot of Antonio Damasio's work. Uh, and I mean, he makes the point that a lot of feeling states, even on like PET scans and MRI scans, uh, are very kind of brainstem centric, that we we see the, the birth of feeling. And he said, you know, we can have unconscious thoughts, we can have unconscious perceptions that are kind of guiding our behavior. Uh, and I mean, this may be controversial, but he said, you know, you can't have an unconscious feeling because you, you have to feel something for it to be a feeling. Uh, and so they think that that kind of is the basis of of what it means to be conscious. And I, I really like that intuition uh, because it, it does mean that like other animals have a conscious experience of what it feels like to, to be alive. It kind of gets back to our Nagel de definition from earlier. Um, and 
it really draws the distinction of what I've been trying to kind of get at in terms of we as humans have all of this extra stuff built on top. Uh, and Anil Seth did a really good job of kind of making this distinction. He said, you know, uh, we really have to distinguish between intelligence and consciousness. Intelligence allows us to be conscious in really cool ways, in creative ways. We can we can like mentally time travel. We can think about the future. We can think about the facts of the past. We can deliberate. We can do all of these really cool things with our consciousness. But intelligence is not consciousness. That consciousness is the feeling state of being alive. Uh, and I think that that really takes it away from this cortex centric thing that's that's really kind of driving a lot of the neuroscience uh, is again, trying to explain what it means to be conscious as a human, to be intelligent as a human, to be able to make these abstract conceptual representations that describe the feelings. This gets back to one of the very first episodes we ever did on emotion. Like, what is emotion? Uh, you you get to like these people like Antonio Damasio, Yak Pengsep, all of these people that talk about the feelings themselves kind of coming from these low order systems, but that all of the emotions are all of this kind of conceptual stuff we're, we're putting on top of it. We're trying to explain why we feel that way and why we're angry and who we're angry at and all of these different things. But that is that is cortex. That is us really trying to make sense of the moment for us to make more informed decisions about what to do next. But it's that phenomenal component that I think is really tricky to get to. Of uh, And I think even uh, Sam Harris, something that we looked at, they posed the zombie problem uh, that uh, you this hypothetical thought experiment, right? You have this, this person that has all of the same machinery as we do, but there's no lights on inside. He's still able to have this conversation that we're having right now, uh, is able to engage, but all of that is just deterministic firing of neurons and all of this kind of stuff. And there's no actual subjective agentic experience. Why does there have to be a subjective experience, right? And that yeah. really, I mean, that's going to lead into, I think, our, our last episode of the year. We're going to talk about free will, uh, whether or not we're making decisions or whether everything is deterministic. Uh, but I I really like to kind of lean into the feeling side of it. And I know I just kind of dominated the conversation there for a minute. But. No, no, that's great. No, I, I agree. Um, yeah, whenever I think about the, the philosophical zombie problem, that was uh, also a, a contribution of David Chalmers um, that, I start to think, no, I mean, that's weak. It's not a, it's not a valid concept because if, if, if something was, a, if matter was arranged in the exact same way to have a, a human, then it would be a conscious creature. Right. And so like, if we're talking about something that would mimic that, maybe that, that makes sense. But no, I agree. I think, uh, yeah, I think this, this maybe brings us to, uh, to a few ideas that we've kind of mentioned throughout this that I, I feel like we should um, we should address because we've just talked about three really kind of specific theories of consciousness from uh, the, the brain angle. And there are other ideas that are, you know, equally, I, I don't know if like equally compelling, but, but seems like they could definitely be, uh, true. And the first one we've, we've mentioned a couple times is panpsychism. And panpsychism uh, is this idea that, okay, there's this problem of this hard problem of consciousness. How does matter become conscious? Why is it, you know, why is the water bottle not conscious, but I am. And it's like, you, you go down far enough and you say, okay, if I could just uh, remove, I mean, this one way of thinking about it, if I were to remove one neuron from my brain at a time, 
right? At what point would I stop being conscious? Or would it, would it just be that there would be not a unified consciousness? And maybe, you know, as you break this system down, there's, it's, there's still consciousness associated with all this matter, but the, the unified aspect of it that I call me and my experience wouldn't be there. And, and it kind of gets to this idea that Taylor was talking about earlier, where is it true that just life itself or that even going down to matter to, to just atoms and, and like fundamental particles, could it be that consciousness is a kind of fundamental property of the, of the physical universe and all matter has some buzzing of consciousness in some way. And the only reason we feel like we're a unified human rather than, you know, like identical with this microphone or the water bottle is that there's like something going on with the nervous system. That's sort of unifying that uh, biological <laughs> systems consciousness. And you can see, as I talk about this, I start to like wander off into fuzziness and not able to really keep my thoughts on track. <laughs> no. And I mean, there's, there's very prominent physicists. Uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but uh, one of the like, preeminent physicists of the like 40s 50s uh went out saying you know consciousness is what we need to solve when we're trying to understand what matter even is because something i mentioned earlier is that we have uh, all of these electrons and protons and neutrons that are, are mostly empty space but somehow this interaction that causes this subjective experience allows us to see them in a certain way to experience time uh and they've really said you know we maybe need to rethink what space-time even is uh through the lens of conscious experience that it may be what's kind of binding some of this stuff together uh but <laughs> you know it's yeah. uh it's all hand it's all hand waving right <laughs> it, it kind of is yeah it's like it's it could explain it but it's not to me, it's not really like satisfying to just say, well, the, the water bottle is conscious, uh, but it's just like in a different way than you are. It's like, OK, well, then there's no problem here, but there still seems to be a problem. <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> yeah, we got top G panpsychism or pan experientialism has become very popular today. It has. And it's because of the fact that you can extend these properties so far. Uh, and then it also kind of speaks to a lot of the intuitions around kind of mysticism or spiritualism or whatever it may be that I want to believe that there's other things like me that can experience the world, that can experience the universe. Uh, and if we start to apply it to like all things, then we have to start applying it. We have to start making those distinctions. Like Andrew said, it's like, okay, even if it is living things, how does something become living? Is it uh, 2,502 particles and now it's living and not 2,000, you know? <laughs> uh, like, where is that distinction made? And uh, an easy way to kind of subvert all of that is just to say that, you know, consciousness has been part of the process the entire way up. Um, so anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, well, one that is uh, kind of more, I guess, more on the like mystical side of things that kind of uh, like, it seems a little bit compelling to me is uh, the idea that we're like the brain is like a, uh, a consciousness radio, like a consciousness <laughs> receiver. Like there's yeah. this fundamental field, much like there's this electromagnetic field permeating the universe. Perhaps there's this field of consciousness that only certain, um, you know, receivers like brains are able to sort of capture <laughs> and, and, uh, channel in some way like we're receiving consciousness from the universe and that's why uh it seems like brains are are conscious but other things aren't but it's 
I mean, again, like, I don't think it really explains all that much. It just is like, okay, well, then should we be looking for a consciousness field? And what would that even look like? And yeah. And I, I think what we're running into with so much of this stuff are the limitations of science, right? Uh, we we like to think that we're so advanced in terms of uh, being able to study these things, but we have really crude tools. Uh, even like an MRI machine is this amazing technological advancement, but it's incredibly crude. Like we're looking at brain activity that happened six or seven seconds ago, right? We have to wait for all the blood flow to come in and we're not actually measuring right now what's happening. Uh, and we're not measuring every single neuron that's firing. We're not measuring whether it's inhibitory or excitatory. There are so many pieces of this puzzle that we can't even put together yet because we don't have the right tools to measure it. Uh, and and that's where it's, it's, it's nice to be able to kind of live in this like speculation space of saying, you know, this, this is a cool theory if we can get there. But, uh, but yeah, I really like Aldous Huxley's mind at large or what he called the reducing valve of consciousness. Uh, yeah. 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 And he, he, uh, yeah, he had the, the book, the doors of perception, right. Where he was, I was talking about his experience on, um, some psychedelic, I can't remember right now that it was a cactus that I, um peyote yeah or what yeah, yeah mescaline. mescaline yeah and how yeah. he was saying like that sort of opened the doors of perception uh i've not read that book but i've heard <laughs> other people talk about it so yeah um and then uh, th so yeah this kind of brings us i think a conclusion that's maybe somewhat depressing but but i think <laughs> could be the case that um maybe we're just cognitively closed to what the solution is maybe there won't ever be a theory of consciousness that fully satisfies us. Maybe we just can't, as humans, wrap our minds around what consciousness really is. Maybe it's too complex. Maybe it's just outside of our, you know, cognitive limitations. Like a dog can't understand quantum mechanics. <laughs> Human beings may not be able to understand consciousness. But um, yep. yeah, so I guess we're leaving you with a bit of a like a <laughs> total mystery. Um, if I think a great resource, if you want to dive into this in more detail, is uh, guys, uh, Anil Seth. <laughs> you just haven't uh, partaken of the DMT. <laughs> oh, I haven't done the DMT. I've, I've done some of the others, but uh, yeah, no, not that one. Um, but uh, the the thing, yeah, Anil Seth, a guy we've mentioned on this uh, episode a bunch of times, wrote this book called Being You. And it's this, uh, it's kind of a uh, review of like consciousness, the science of consciousness. And he goes into a lot more depth than, than we did here on a lot of these theories and others. So I would, I would definitely recommend that book. I think something that I kind of wanted to close with uh, is despite us not having kind of a, a this really kind of uh, this answer that feels good or whatever, uh, something that you can lean on is that what we do know about consciousness can be really helpful for you in understanding your own experience, right? Because we do know, like Andrew was talking about earlier, we kind of mentioned that the information that makes it to consciousness is important, right? And it can be changed by lesions or whatever it may be. But there, all of that stuff is getting to awareness for a reason. And if you're thinking about like, like therapeutic techniques or any of these kind of things, the stuff that makes it to consciousness is usually the stuff that needs to be addressed. 
the feelings, the pain, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, the way that I really like to think about this is that the conscious space is the space where the, the biggest decisions need to be made for the organism to be able to persist. It's where our long-term goals exist. It's where all of the feeling states that challenge what we need to be thinking about right now versus this versus that, right? It's where deliberation happens. And if you can kind of realize that all of that stuff is being fed into that space for a certain reason, uh, it allows you to kind of interact with it in a different way uh, that may be kind of helpful for you. Uh, so again, I mean, this was, it, it's a really cool thing to, to think about this. I mean, this is a fascinating topic. I, I think everyone has an opinion on what it is and what it isn't. Uh, I think the theories right now are very impoverished. They don't experience kind of, uh, different types of mental states like psychogen, psycho, psychedelics, <laughs> uh, <laughs> any of that kind of stuff. So we have a lot of work left to do, but I hope that this really kind of opened your eyes to how cool the problem is in general. Um, and kind of where the science is with trying to understand it. Yeah. And, uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks probably to talk about, we'll definitely be back, but it may be a couple yeah. weeks. We'll talk about, um, so an equally interesting and kind of, uh, seemingly intractable problem <laughs> of, uh, free will. So the next episode, that's what we're going to be talking about, which will tie into a lot of what we talked about here today, but yeah, just want to thank everybody for watching and all the activity in the chat. Um, really just appreciate all you guys uh, being here and uh, just hanging out with us. <laughs> awesome. We will see you guys for the next one.